There are certain names that even if you don't know the totality of their story, are going to kind of kind of bring a negative feel to you. Going to kind of kind of ooh, I don't know if I like that person. For instance, Benedict Arnold. None of you thought about, most likely, unless you're a true military historian, thought about the great victories he won in the Revolutionary War before he betrayed General Washington. You're going to think about his betrayal. That's the way betrayal works. Judas. Very few of us are going to think about the fact that the disciples let Judas be the, hold, hold their common offering. And if I've learned anything in ministry, you don't just let anybody near the money. So the fact the disciples trusted Judas enough to let him have the money meant there must be something worthy about him to have earned their trust. So there are names that we think about that echo with pain or betrayal. One such name, I don't know if you're all familiar with Marshall Petten, I think is how his name was pronounced. He was, the, he was the leader of Vichy, France during World War II. Marshall Petten was the great French military hero of World War I. He was the most highly decorated French soldier after the First World War. He was a universally regarded and beloved figure in France following the First War. And as Hitler steamrolled into, uh, across Europe, eventually conquering France, the French government dissolved. And Petten was named president, prime minister. And then eventually he began to collaborate with the Nazis. And after war, the war was over with, this national hero, this man that had been regarded as one of the greatest French military heroes ever, he, he uh, became convicted of treason and was scheduled to be executed. But he was later, because of his advanced age and his previous heroics, was, 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 was allowed not to be killed. But here was this great man, this man that literally had achieved the height in French military history, the height of respect, everything. He was, after the war, seen as a betrayer, one that had turned his back on the best principles of his nation, turned his back on the best principles of his army, turned his back on, the, on what they all held in common. The word betrayal itself is a word that just feels heavy with angst and failure and awful. It's just a word. Even the word hurts. It's interesting, though. The concept of betrayal is found very early in the Christian church. Peter, for the rooster crows three times, you will deny me three times. Paul was one who sought to persecute the church. In fact, the word traitor has to it a beginning in the Christian church. The traitors were the ones who turned over the sacred scrolls of the early church to the Romans. Rome sought to kill Christians. So some Christians would betray their fellow believers and give up the names of Christians to Rome and also turn over scripture to Rome. That was where the word betrayer kind of comes from. And uh, after this, a question emerged in the church. Well, what is to be done with those who betray the church? When they are truly penitent, when they truly are regretful 
and mournful of their sins. What is the church to do with those who have betrayed it? And the universal answer by all the early church fathers was this. You are to welcome them back in. When someone falls, and even something as epic and awful as betrayal, when someone does that, the church is obligated as those that take on the name of Christ to welcome back the truly penitent, no matter what. Last week, we talked about forgiving our enemies. And that's, you know, enemies are, are hard to forgive, but, but they're over there. Enemies are over there. You know, we all kind of, very few of us, you know, walk hand in hand with our enemies. It's not typically something we do. Today, though, we're talking about something a little bit closer to home. What do we do when we're betrayed? What do we do when someone we love Someone that is a member of our family or our close friend, when they hurt us, when they wrong us, when they even, shall we say, betray us, what do we as Christians do in that setting? What are we to do? And that's hard, y'all. Enemies are easy. They're over there. This one's personal. This is our neighbors and our friends and our family. I don't like conflict. Very few of us do. I mean, very, very, very few folks say, boy, I love a good conflict. That's a lot of fun. No. I try to run from it. I like to be liked. That's one of my weaknesses. I'm a people pleaser. I like folks to like me. Most preachers are. And sometimes it just can't, it can't happen. And conflict shows us that. Conflict is challenging. Conflict is hard. Conflict hurts. So what do we do with it? Today, Jesus gives us some examples. And and you know what the first thing he does is this. He says, go talk to them. If someone's hurt you, if someone's wronged you, if someone's done something truly painful to you, go talk to them. Don't go on Facebook and put passive-aggressive Facebook statuses. Don't go gossip. Don't go run them down. Don't go tell everybody but them. Go talk to them. And that's hard. <laughs> we don't want to do that because that puts us in conflict with people. That, that puts us right there with them and that we don't want to do that. But Jesus says you must. You must. Go. He says first go talk to them. Then, if that didn't work, bring some friends with you and talk to them. And then if that didn't work, even involve the church. Because, because here's the thing. Here's the thing you need to understand about right here for Jesus. This is, this is the entire point of all this. You know what God's desire for, for us is in conflict? You know what God's desire is in all these situations? God's desire is reconciliation. God wants there to be healing to broken relationships. God wants there to be restoration to relationships that are fractured. God wants for lives, for relationships, for places that are broken. God wants these things to be made right. God wants these things to be restored. God wants to bring healing to these situations because that's who God is. God is a God of reconciliation. 
Scripture says that Christ Jesus, through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of reconciliation. You see it all across Scripture. You see Jacob and Esau. Y'all, go read Jacob and Esau. Jacob was hateful. That boy needed a whooping. I mean, Jacob was awful, awful to his brother, awful. He's the good guy. When the good guys are that bad, you know. But eventually in their relationships, there was reconciliation. We see it with Paul and the church, how Paul persecuted the church. And eventually through Barnabas, he was reconciled back to the church. We see it. We see it through David and Jonathan as David welcomed Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, back to his table. God is a God of reconciliation. And that is always God's desire for broken relationships is reconciliation. Always. That's God's ultimate desire is reconciliation. Now, pull them back a second. Because of all the addiction stuff in my family, I'm a big believer in 12-step programs. AA and other type 12 step programs. And one of the steps of the 12 is to make amends to those who have harmed you or to those, those that you have wronged, unless doing so is painful for them. So you're supposed to reconcile unless your presence is a painful memory that you don't need to induce upon them. God's desire for all broken relationships. This is God's desire for all broken relationships is reconciliation. But sometimes that complete reconciliation might not happen this side of glory. Sometimes reconciliation may be a long process and it might not happen until we reach eternity. I was in a class one day in seminary, and the, and the professor says, God wants every relationship to be reconciled. That's what God wants. That's what must happen. It must happen. And I went to him after class and said, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ramsey, great professor, Dr. Ramsey. I said, uh, told him my family story. I said, I have no desire to be reconciled with my biological father. He murdered my mother. I have no desire to be reconciled to him. Now, maybe one day. I've not given up hope. But not right now. Reconciliation is God's desire. And one day in eternity... One day in heaven, we will be reconciled with all. We will know God as God knows us. We will fully know as we have been fully known. One day in eternity, we will be reconciled. That will happen. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Christ is Lord. And we will be reconciled completely with God and with each other. That's going to happen. But that's a process. And before we can begin with reconciliation, we must start somewhere else. And that somewhere else is forgiveness. Maybe you can't reconcile right now. Maybe there's too much water under the bridge. Maybe you have zero desire to be reconciled with that wrong person who's done you wrong. That's not God's long-term plan, but right now in this moment, that may be the way it is. You might not desire reconciliation, but you must forgive. You must forgive. 
It starts with forgiveness. Now, let me tell you, y'all, forgiveness doesn't mean we've got to hold hands and sing kumbaya. Forgiveness doesn't mean we've got to be best friends. Forgiveness doesn't mean we've got to go fishing. Forgiveness is sometimes wishing someone no ill will. I wish my biological father no ill will. I pray he knows my Savior. I pray he makes it to heaven. And I pray in God's time we are reconciled. We're working on God's time. God's ultimate desire for every broken relationship is reconciliation. But before we get there, we have to start with forgiveness. Forgiveness is never earned. The person to whom you need to be reconciled, they probably don't deserve your forgiveness. They probably haven't earned it. And that's okay. Because in the end, forgiveness is not about them, it's about us. Forgiveness is about us. Forgiveness is us taking the burden off of our back and walking away. Forgiveness is about me. Forgiveness is about me. It must start there. We all desire to be forgiven. And we all need to extend forgiveness to others. There's a story about a Spanish father and son. They had a falling out. The son left in a huff, left home, vowed to never come back, and it broke the father's heart. The father tried to reconcile with the son, and it never happened. So in a last-ditch effort, the father wrote a, put an ad in a Madrid newspaper and said, the son's name was Paco. He said, Paco, I miss you. I desire to be reconciled. Meet me out front of this newspaper at 12 noon this Saturday. I love you. All is forgiven. Please come home, Papa. At noon that next Saturday, there were 800 Pacos. No, 800 people longing to to be reconciled to their father. There were 800 people praying that was their dad that wrote that letter, praying it was their father who desired to make things right, praying it was their dad who desired to be reconciled. Y'all, we all want to be forgiven, and we all want to go back home. Louis Grizzard said we spend the first half of our life trying to get away from home and the last half of our life trying to get back home. Relationships are hard. Family is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Reconciliation is hard. But God is good. And forgiveness, forgiveness is the only way forward. Each week we do our marble promise. We take a marble out. We talk about how we spent it this past week. Talk about what this week will be. It's my challenge to you in this week. To whom do you need to be reconciled? Where is their brokenness? Where are their fractured relationships? Where does it need to be made right? 
Will you make the first step of forgiveness? Will you extend the undeserved olive branch this week? That's all you have to do. The rest is up to them. Will you forgive? Forgiveness is the only path forward. Forgiveness is the only way forward. God desires reconciliation. That's his desire. Maybe you're not ready for that. But we all, we all need to forgive. Today, may we forgive others. And may we be forgiven ourselves. Let us pray.